When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. We're coming to the end of another packed year for the Intelligence Squared podcast. And across the holidays this year, we're going to be hearing from a few of the team who are the people who make the podcast happen. Mark Roberts is our technical operations manager, technically operating across so many things, it's hard to keep up. (laughs) But essentially every live stream you watch or superb live event you see, as part of a live audience, it's Mark running the show. Hi, Connor. Mark, what was your highlight for 2023? I'm going for Russell Kane on class and comedy. Interesting choice. Tell us a little bit about why you've gone for Russell Kane. Well, it's from our series, How I Found My Voice, which is a really lovely deep dive discussion format. The journalist Samira Ahmed gets to know the person behind the public persona we may be more familiar with. And Russell Kane is a really successful comedian in the UK. Yes, there's some great episodes in that series. Kate Winslet, Philip Pullman, and as you say, Russell Kane. This conversation actually took a while before it came out because of the COVID pandemic and everything being put on hold. I think it was actually recorded in 2021. So it was great to finally get it out in the world. What was it about the conversation that struck you? Well, I personally really enjoyed recording that episode because I remember Russell turned up with a good microphone and a pair of headphones which is all I'm looking for in a podcast recording but in terms of the actual episode I just really enjoyed listening to Russell talk about his relationship with his father I know it's something that he's talked about a lot in his stand-up his father was a what you might call a stereotypical alpha male um, and Russell was not exactly a chip off the old block but there was still obviously a huge amount of uh, warmth and love between them nonetheless Um, so it was just really interesting to hear about that dynamic and themes of uh, masculinity and toxic masculinity certainly is very interesting to see how that's shaped him as a person and how that shaped his uh, comedy career. Okay, well, that sounds great. And there's a lesson there for any uh, prospective guests of the podcast. Good mics, good headphones. Well, let's have a listen now. This is comedian Russell Kane speaking with journalist Samira Ahmed. Welcome to the podcast, Russell, first of all. It's really nice to have you. Hello, thank you. Yeah, great to be here. 
I want to start by taking you back to Minnie Russell growing up in Essex. So you're born in 1980. You're one, I guess, you could say one of Thatcher's children yes. in terms of what was going on at the time. What sort of child were you and what kind of household were you growing up in? Well, we already come to the first ambiguity of, of my existence. Primarily, I grew up in Enfield. It certainly didn't feel like London. I've been back there recently for a documentary I was making for Radio 4. It still doesn't feel like London. It feels more like Essex. It's not in Essex. So there was already a sort of, um, I'm not not mean to be horrible to Enfield, but a sort of nothingness, a kind of where do I belongness that has stayed with me and, and served me very well as a comedian, a sort of outsiderness to the place. Also, I was born in 1975. Um, oh, sorry about but, that. No, no. Listen, I'll go 85 if you want to keep going. <laughs> um, so I was even more uh, Thatcher's children because I can remember the thing that supercharged our ascent into the upper working class was when my dad bought our own council house in 1980. So I do just remember moving in aged five. Knowing what I know now about selling off social housing, I'm, of course, conflicted, but there's no doubt about it. I benefited from the social steroids of Thatcherism. So tell me about your mum, first of all. What was she like? Me and my mum are almost like carbon copies. It's like someone's aged me up and put a perm on, on the head. High energetic, bounce out of bed, stick with pepper army eyes stuck on, always tidying up, always hitting targets, never been in debt, super organised person. And she also worked outside the home. She did a lady, a cleaner and a childminder. Is that right? So my actual first home was a mother and baby shelter, believe it or not, just purely because my mum wanted to get a council house. So she was living in the spare room at her grandma's. So she intentionally made herself homeless, as it were, so we could get a council flat. So the first few years was just getting housed, raising babies, me and my brother. Then after that, my mum worked as a dinner lady or a a childminder, and then latterly as a a cleaner, domestic and commercial. She would do factories as well as private houses. It sounds like you're really fond of her and she was a big influence on you. Let's talk about your dad. And I've got a quote. You've described him as this dominating silverback Essex male who's into everything (laughs) that's masculine. This is one I'll never forget. I'll take this one to the nursing home with me, right? We were out having a ploughman's over the Warren Wood in Essen, right? A blue bottle landed on my dad's cheddar, right? Now, most mentally normal humans and abnormal ones would waft the fly away. Would you not? Chop my old man did. This is the most pathetic, impotent display of testosterone I've ever seen in my life. He leant in to that fly about this far from its wings and went, wanker! At a fly. <laughs> I know he's a big part of what you talk about in your comedy too. How did you see yourself in comparison to him? Well, recently I did a, one of those DNA test things online. I'm very dark colouring, so I just wondered, where, you know, where's my blood from sort of thing. And I've got to be honest, part of me thought, what if I turn out not to be my dad's child after all? You know, we're just so different to someone. We lived in the same house, we were on different planets. He was bodybuilder, blonde hair, blue eyes, 5% body fat, doorman, lifeguard, sheet metal worker, welder, rugby player. He used to make nunchucks, which are the bits of wood Bruce Lee beat people up with, and sell them down the pub. You know, bend metal with his bare hands and he's got me for a son copying dances with a glittery question mark over my head. Very camp, no girlfriend, didn't even kiss a girl before I was 17. We did not speak the same language. It was like someone who speaks French and someone who speaks Mandarin trying to have a conversation emotionally. That was us. We were just not on different planets. And he's like, how come you ain't got a bird yet? Yo, shagging 100 birds a week by the time I was your age. We did rugby at my school. I used to pick up the rugby ball, boy, and I would walk... And the people wouldn't even tackle me out of fear. 
and I would walk it to the touchline and touch the ball. And I had like one pube at this point. I literally, by 15, I had one chest pube. That was it. My body did hit puberty, but I stayed a child until my dad died, I would say. I was 28 when my dad deceased and I was still felt 12 in his presence. I mean, you talk about it in this amazing, articulate way. But can I ask, looking back, do you think you were unhappy? How did you feel as a kid? Obviously, as a teenager, a miserable, screaming, goth force of nature. But I've learned now that not all teenagers are like that. So I did have a, quite a tough time of it from the age of about 14 to about 21. Hated my skin, I hated life. I mean, my house was here in the middle. Two ways that way was weed. Another door along was solid, cannabis, resin. One day that way, amphetamine. And two more doors that way was trips and eat and ecstasy. So it was just normal to fucking take drugs. That's probably what caused my difficult later adolescence, pouring all this poison into my body. But I have no memories of being unhappy as a child and no memories of feeling poor. I thought we were absolutely minted. We had our own council house. My dad dug a swimming pool in the back garden with his bare hands. What? And yeah, he got, he hired a digger, dug a, a six foot deep ditch, 21 foot long, sunk a swimming pool in. He was a good build. So to me, we, we were like living the high life. It's only when I got to literally to 1920 and I was working in a shop for nine grand a year, I thought just because of where I've been born, I'm not at Oxford or Cambridge. How fucking out of order is that? And, and was furious. But looking back now, my dad was constantly negative, always moaned and could ruin any day out by moaning. Did it make me unhappy? No, I found it funny. I mean, we could be going to Stansted Airport to go to Menorca on our first ever holiday when I was 12. And I bet you the traffic shit. I bet you if we get ripped off for the food, I bet the food's cold on the plane. Everything in advance is going to be shit. Now, anything I tried, you're going to take that up, waste of time, you'll fail at it. Waste of time. But instead of it crushing me and me being in therapy, I just sort of laughed it off and succeeded to spite him. Well, tell me then, how early were you nurturing your interest in jokes and books and that sort of environment? Not at all. Never. There was no reading, no literature, no drama and no virtually no theatre in my childhood, apart from the local pantomime society, because I clearly had something going on and my mum didn't know what to do with me. I was an absolute bored, 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 constantly bored. So they put me to things where I could show off. So I did the panto when I was 11 and 12. I did some extra work on Grange Hill and I, and I auditioned for The Bill and did a little part in that. But other than that, it's hard for people to understand or they think you're exaggerating. But when you grow up in a bog standard council street working class childhood, you're not abused or deprived. This is just normal. There is no theatre. There are no books on the shelf. Why would there be books on the shelf? Books are boring. There's the microwave cookbook, my dad's diving manual. We didn't go to theatre in the holidays and, and to museums. And we just chilled out in the garden. And uh, that was it. And then the big thing was a curry or a takeaway at, on Saturday. That was the big, massive, operatic thing we look forward to. Or all-inclusive for a week in Spain. this raw addiction to story that would well it meant I, I was a bit of a liar for a while and storytelling and making my friends laugh I had no idea that could be monetized or put into a career got to 19 I was literally on a cigarette break in a shop hating my life I was selling Rolexes it was constantly rich English people with boys that looked like me, same height, same meat on the same bones that spoke different that were getting their graduation watches why? 
just because of the prejudice of society and the way society is structured, me, by my accident of my birth, had fulfilled exactly what you could have predicted in 1975. Something snapped. I was like, no. Stubbed my cigarette out. And um, I was living with my nan at that point because I had a row with my dad. And I sent off for A-levels and I studied them out of a box in my nan's spare room. I got the fastest ever sociology A-grade from enrol to A-grade and I won an award from Betty Boothroyd. I've got the, my mum's got the picture on her wall. Then I got really angry when I saw the structures that were in place that had led to me not going to Oxford and Cambridge. Who knows whether I'm bright enough? I never had the opportunity to find out. You know, I was destined on this path and it's only if you get an awakening like I did that I thought I'm not having it. I got the A-level, then I got to uni, then you couldn't stop me. Then I got a first and I came out and I went into an ad agency. Then I was head of copy within 18 months. Only then did someone say to me, you make people laugh the whole time. And I was like, yeah, I've been like it since I'm a kid. Why don't you try stand up? What, Bernard Manning? No, no, I don't like stuff. That's what I thought it was. You weren't aware of that whole nothing. alternative comedy scene Zero. Uh, the only thing I'd ever seen was The Young Ones and Blackadder and things like that. Can't bear American comedy with its posturing and slick punchlines. Doesn't speak to me at all. So for me, comedy was Jim Davison, Bernard Manning. This is what my dad watched and howled laughing at the racist jokes. And I'm clubbing in North London to... Uh, drum and bass, which is all about unity and hugging someone a different colour to you on the dance floor and going home at six in the morning. How can Bernard Manning speak to me? I wasn't offended and being all lefty and covered in a hummus blanket going racial equality. It just didn't, it just didn't speak to me. It's only when someone said, what about Edinburgh Festival, which I thought was ballet and opera, that I hit Google. We had a shared computer at work. 2002, this is just before my dad died. You know, when something you're vaguely aware of something, I don't know what Peloton is. I just know everyone's doing it at the moment, but I would have to sit down and research Peloton. That's how I was about stand-up. And I saw what these guys were doing. They didn't have punchlines. They spoke about themselves. There were people that were really funny. No one that looked like me. I'd never been to see live comedy ever in my entire life. So I went, watched it once, thought, well, I could definitely do it better than that and booked a gig the next week. <laughs> So that happened for us. I want to just fill in some of the gaps for the for the audience who may not have quite kept up to speed. So you're working in a watch shop. You have this epiphany moment where you just think, I could do better. And I think you wrote in your diary, didn't you, that today's the day That's right. everything changes. It, it wasn't as quite... I, I'm, sort of, I'm falsely representing my epiphany there because an epiphany is generated within one's self. Whereas what had actually happened was, as I was addled with some sort of substance, let's call it sherry, at five in the morning on a dance floor to Hard House, this beautiful girl had come across the dance floor and put her number in my hand. This was to become my second great love of my life, 19. So we were going back to hers, which was halls. And I was waking up in halls to watch people toddle across a lawn at 10am after having a lie-in, drinking beer, discussing ideas, giving it the biggin on a, pe a beautiful piece of green lawn, while I, like a peasant, waited for a train to drag myself into a job I hated. And I was so disgusted at my ignorance and how much I naturally love what literature I had encountered, something just broke. So that's what led to the epiphanic moment. And I just started reading like someone, I was getting up at six and having two hours formal reading. And I read like, I don't know if you've ever read, um, I think it's Nausea by Sartre. There's a character called the autodidact in it, who's a figure of fun, who reads from A to Z and through again till he's caught up the elites. I admired that character. I only knew what my dad had taught me, which is you dig a foundation, you build a brick, you do it one by one, you build it bigger and stronger than everyone else. So I thought, well, you can't stop me going from Austin to Zola and back again. And so by the time I got to uni, 
18 months later, I was already talking about literature in a way that was more passionate than the kids that had been bored by it, even though I didn't have the depth of knowledge yet. So, but while I was at uni, I was completing my work like a fly landing on a surface and then reading at 5am all the books that were missing from my knowledge. I hid this for years. I was so ashamed. I collected index cards with all the words, all the big words that I didn't know because I don't know any big words because I don't come from that background. And every time I encountered a word, I didn't look it up in a dictionary like someone who truly had a breakdown. But if I, I'll never forget the first word I encountered appropriately was impudent. It was in Pride and Prejudice, the first book I read on this journey to fill in the gaps. And every time I encountered a word, I numbered it on the card, wrote it down. I had to learn the diacritic alphabet because is it impudent? Is it impudent? I was too embarrassed to ask. Yeah. I didn't want to make an idiot of myself. So I learnt the diacritic marks. I learnt the cognates, impudent, impudence, impudently. And I carried those cards around with me, almost a backpack full, sat on the toilet, revising thousands of new words until they sat in my consciousness naturally and I was able to use them in conversation without feeling artificial. You burnt those cards, didn't you? Burnt them, yeah. I was so ashamed of them. I was so ashamed. It felt like fake. So if I say to you... I'm having a terrible time with the children today. They've been so obstreperous. I don't feel like I've got the right to use the word obstreperous because I've learnt it artificially. I can only describe it as a bit feeling analogous to someone who's come here from another country or a first generation immigrant. Mm. I hear these people speaking and I have to keep quiet like I haven't got a right to join in because I'm just a white bloke. But I identify so often with the imposter not fitting in, not part of the elite mainstream thing. But because of the colour of my skin, I get muddled in with everyone who had the breaks. Very frustrating. I still now would be uncomfortable using the word obstreperous, for example, even though I've encountered it in Iris Murdoch and A.S. Byatt countless times. I still wouldn't use that word, even if I felt it was the right word, because it sits uncomfortably in my accent. Pathetic, really. Well, it's, tra- no, it's tragic. It's, 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 I, it's think a, you're, I think you're hard on yourself. Well, on, I'm just being honest with you. There's an, an embarrassment would surge as I use the word. I probably would use it because of, I'm a courageous show-off person. But inside, it would feel plastic, like I should have said they've been noisy today or they've been disturbing me. Like I should have used cleaner, simpler language. Have I used the word obstreperous because it's the most appropriate word to use and just happens to be polysyllabic? Or have I used it because it feels impressive and like I've got a first and I need to let you know? That's the way you live your life. And I'm guessing it's the same for people of colour, but in, in different ways they feel in certain situations. about your experience in advertising because you started on £100 a week not long after graduating with a first class degree and you became head copywriter at that agency so again you know you just when you choose something you apply yourself you fly because copywriting is so often about that killer line and making that hit with an audience do you think there were any skills there that have actually been useful in your career as a as a stand-up every single day Evil genius would not exist. Um, Half the things you've just described would not exist. Half my stand-up. And the reason being is 
I'm very big in putting a framework like you have behind this podcast. So finding my voice, you've sat down, you've gone, this is what it's about. Around it, you've drawn a frame to to really hone that chat. Well, that's what I do with every single idea I pitch. And that that's pure from my advertising. I'm also quite good. I have no attachment to anything I write. I love a joke being rejected. It's it's a relief to bin work. That comes from the advertising day where you can spend all day high-fiving your art director, only for your creative director to go, it's dog shit, throw it in the bin. And eventually you just don't feel anything anymore. Great, great training for stand-up. If you're a stand-up that is wedded to your joke, regardless of laughter incoming, you will not progress. So laughter is the creative director, and I'm able to very, very quickly go, I don't care if it's an 8 out of 10, it's not a 10 out of 10, in the bin it goes. This is probably a hilarious <laughs> moment to reveal that I've been married to a copywriter for 25 years. <laughs> and it's, so it's probably quite hard to criticise. No, but it's so true, so much of what you say about the importance of rejecting stuff, but also the partnership, the, the to and fro with his art director was like a comedy writing partnership. Yes. You have compared your first experience of stand-up to being addicted to heroin. What did you mean by that? When I was at school, there was this advertising campaign where you tried it, you'll be sick, but you'll come back for more. And it was the needle going in and the girl was throwing up. That and HIV were the things I grew mm. up completely terrified of, thanks to the advertising. I mean, it's, you know, I, I almost spent my teen years just wrapped in a condom saying no to drugs. So what happened was, you've got to bear in mind all the background we've just set up. All of my family, they're all lovely people, but no one's, no one's ever sat on a pink fluffy couch and been told to think up headlines for an obscene amount of what to me was an obscene wage every year. So I'm head copywriter, earning good money. I've got a flat in Clapham. I've got pedigree cats. I know what hummus is. I've made it, yeah? And I start doing this comedy thing in the evening and I tried it and I was like, what the dickens was that when the first laugh hit? Like a rush, like a complete endorphin, ego completion rush, way beyond any of the drugs I've tried, MDMA or whatever. You want more of it and you want more of it. You don't want more of it next week. You want more of it the next night. You want it twice a night. The advertising world doesn't work like that. You have to suddenly be available till 9pm. You have to suddenly be available at the weekend. I was getting out of work at 6pm in Fulham and driving to Manchester wow. to do 20 minutes for no money. Wow. Just to feel the hit. And the reason it's analogous to heroin, in case people think I'm being offensive, is my life fell apart. My job started to fall apart. My relationship fell apart. I couldn't look after my pets. I lost nearly a stone in weight where I had, I had stage fright, which was as yet untreated. I was being sick, diarrhea, both. So I literally lost two stone, lost my girlfriend, lost my job and nearly lost my house. If that isn't as close as you can get to being a heroin addict, I don't know what is. So I've got two questions about that. Obviously, you love doing it. What sort of material were you producing? And did you not have, you know... Downers in the sense of heckles or, you know, you mentioned stage fright. Of course, there's downers and risks with the high going wrong, just to follow the metaphor. Sadly, as a male stand-up, as you'll know, if you haven't watched any new ones, it's sort of a, the field of discussion is quite pelvic. You tend to just go on with your funny story you tell your mates down the pub and a few wanking jokes. I was no different to any other person who didn't know what they were doing. The one advantage I had over every other new person was I'd never watched stand-up and have no respect or passion for American stand-up. So I wasn't trying to go, here's my killer insight that's going to trend. And there was no punchlines. It was me going off on one at high energy. It was a bit random. It was quite chaotic, which is what I'm like. It's taking 
all my willpower to rein the horse in talking to you. It's just, so I just monetized or publicized my personality. I don't really have material. I just hand me a microphone and do me. South end, south end, south end. <laughs> I used to come here every weekend. My dad's from this area, he's from Lee and then Barking. Then I did a bit of growing up in Enfield. Now I'm back here living in Westcliff. And you bring friends down to party in Southend, you have to see Southend High Street. And it freaks people out, people with the traditional Essex walk, walking down. <laughs> That's created by the pigeons on the high street. Got a fucking state of those, Gary. So the, the most bizarre coincidence happened, of course, the month I tried this. My dad dropped down dead from a heart attack in the same month. I mean, it's almost Shakespearean, like, the king is dead, long live the king. When my dad hit the deck... I mean, literally two days later, I was on stage. In between him suddenly dying and the funeral, I did two shows. Bearing in mind, my brother is very, very severely mentally ill. So I'm looking after my brother. I'm looking after my mum and all the fallout of that. My dad's died on holiday. I've had to fly to Cyprus to help my mum with arranging the body to be repatriated. I did a gig the night before I flew to Cyprus. I did a gig when I landed. This is crazy behaviour. So once my dad passed away, it freed up in me the biographical stuff that I probably wouldn't have had the courage to say, making fun of him, basically. Once I freed that up, it was fifth gear. And then I just had to leave work in 2006 because the success started coming. Russell Kane there speaking to Samira Ahmed. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Well, I'm going to change up the tone now, and my staff pick for 2023 is Bernie Sanders on money and power. We had the US politician over in London back in March. He was discussing his book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, with the BBC's Justin Webb. And you were actually the producer for that event, weren't you, Connor? So um, tell us a little bit about how that came about. We really wanted to have Bernie on the podcast when we found out he was coming over to London, and we managed to pin him down and get him in a studio in central London um, during his sort of couple of days here and uh, it was all a bit frantic I remember he was looking for the studio I had to come outside and try and find him and lo and behold there he was standing outside Ben and Jerry's and, and <laughs> for those listeners who know Bernie is the uh, senator for Vermont where Ben and Jerry's is, is obviously from so even when he was abroad you know he's still staying loyal to his constituents on a somber note it was also a time when the war in Ukraine was really front and center of everyone's minds and it was great to hear his thoughts on that as someone on the left and also someone leading on sort of US policy in that area. Okay, well, let's take a listen. Uh, this is Bernie Sanders and Justin Webb speaking in March 2023. 
Senator Sanders, without further ado, hello, thank you for talking to us. Well, thank you very much um, for inviting me. Can I, before we get to the wider issues, we, we have Ukraine so much on our minds at the moment, and in a way particularly in Europe, I think, much more than in the United States. Um, do you have a sense of how that war ends? I simply hope it ends as soon as it possibly can. You know, Justin, it is an unspeakable tragedy. You know, I think many of us, certainly Europeans, never expe never expected that we'd see a war like this in Europe, uh, the worst since World War II. Uh, and it is it is, was a war that could have been avoided. I was involved a little bit in those discussions. Uh, Putin had concerns. They could have been addressed. Uh, but he chose another path. So all I can say is, uh, you know, I think uh, we cannot allow... Putin's aggression to go uh, uncontrolled. Uh, he has to be responded to. Uh, and I hope as, you know, I hope that it ends as quickly as possible. And I hope that the Russian people uh, stand up and, and understand how terrible this is, not only for them, but for the whole world. There is a real sense um, on the British left that that they are torn, actually, about whether or not uh, the war was provoked by NATO, but also they are torn about the extent to which it is right to back Ukraine in all of Ukraine's war aims. Do, do you have that? Is there that sense on the American left as well? There is, you... there is but I, I, I think in this one, really, as somebody who has opposed so many wars of the United States, you know, you're looking at somebody who voted against the military budget, uh, on this one... Putin did not have to do what he chose to do. Uh, so all I can say is I hope it certainly ends as soon as possible that there's a negotiated settlement. But I think we cannot allow Putin to run uh, roughshod over an independent country. Right. And that does mean supplying the weapons that the Ukrainians say they need. Yes. Uh, let's turn to other matters. One of the things that I, I found fascinating about your book, it reminded me of how close you came to the nomination, not not only the most recent one, but actually potentially back in in 2016, when you were running principally against Hillary Clinton, is 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 that a fair thing to say that you were? It is. Look, uh, when we started that campaign, Justin, we were at something like five percent in the polls, and uh, nobody took us very seriously. Um, nobody thought that a candidate with my politics would go very far. But we ended up winning state after state and millions and millions of votes uh, and really threw the political establishment into a state of shock. Uh, but at the end of the day, when you're taking on the political establishment, you're taking on the economic establishment, you're taking on the media establishment, that's a tough thing to do. So we, we lost in 2016. But what came out of that is an unprecedented uh, movement in modern American history of bringing working people and young people together to think big, not small. So we lost the election, but I think it is widely recognized that we won something enormously important. We helped change political consciousness in America and what working people have a right to expect from their government. You stood again in 2020. Why did you lose that time? Well, that time was kind of much clearer. It was a larger field. I think at one point we had 18 or 20 
Too many for one TV studio at one stage, wasn't (laughs) it? That's right. That divided the debates in in half. Uh, We won the popular vote in in the first state. That was Iowa. Uh, We won a landslide victory uh, in Nevada, which was the third state. We won a victory in New Hampshire. So we won the first three states. uh, And that got the establishment very nervous. We lost in South Carolina. And then we have what we call Super Tuesday, which is when a whole lot of states come together. And we were favored to win many of those states. Uh, And we ended up winning California and so forth. Uh, But what ended up happening is the establishment said, you know what, we better rally around one candidate, not split the vote. That candidate was Joe Biden. uh, And he won a number of states uh, on Super Tuesday. And combine that with COVID and the inability to get out and campaign he won the uh, Democratic nomination. You made your peace with Joe Biden very much, haven't you? And you supported him w- yes. when he was the Well, the, I did. The I supported him strongly, A, for two reasons. Number one, it was absolutely imperative to do everything we could to defeat Donald Trump and his pathological lying and his authoritarianism. Uh, and number two, at the end of our campaign, Biden did something which was rather unusual for an establishment Democrat. He recognized what our movement was about, and he said, all right, let's put together a task force of his campaign and my campaign. Let's look at issues like health care, the economy, climate, housing, etc." So we sat down with him, and we hammered out uh, a very progressive agenda. It wasn't everything I wanted. Quite progressive, though. Yeah, so when the Wall Street Journal say, as they did recently, Joe Biden is Bernie Sanders, uh, they're kind of right. Well, I wouldn't go that far. No, Joe Biden is not Bernie Sanders. But what's the difference? I mean, if, 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 if Bernie Sanders had won in, in, in uh, 2020, what would the difference be and won the presidency? What would the difference, the difference would have been is I would have been, I think, a much more activist president in going out around the country and demanding and understanding there are limits to what a president can do unless you have mass grassroots working class support. So what I would have done as president has not only been commander-in-chief of the military, but organizer-in-chief, if you like, bringing working people together to fight for an economy and a government that work for all. Uh, As the book talks about, what we are looking at right now is the movement in America, and I suspect in many other countries, toward an oligarchic form of society. So what we need to do is rally people, black and white and Latino, Asian American, our people to stand together for a progressive vision which substantially improves lives, the lives of working families. Is part of that vision an attack on the people who run the tech industry and their power that we haven't properly seen on either side of the Atlantic? Yes. The the short answer is yes. There's obviously been a revolution in technology, uh, in social media, and, and so forth. Uh, And one of the things, Justin, that I worry about very much, and we touch upon it a little bit in the book, is I think people are underestimating the impact that artificial intelligence and robotics uh, and the explosion of technology that we're seeing is going to have on the workforce. So one of the questions that has to be asked, who is going to benefit from that explosion of technology? Is technology a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. If you can produce twice as much with new technology... I think that's good. But you should benefit as a worker from that, not just have the CEO of the large corporation benefiting while you're thrown out on the street and replaced by a robotic. So that is an issue we need a lot of discussion about. But it comes down to the fundamental issue of this book, and that is power. Who has the power? And I think in this country, certainly in my country, 
You're looking at a handful of billionaires who have enormous control over our economy. We have more concentration of ownership than we've ever seen in American history. You're talking about more income and wealth inequality than we've ever seen in American history. And in America, I don't know how many people in the UK are familiar with our campaign finance system, but basically billionaires are able to buy elections. So what you're seeing is more and more power in the hands of a few, and I think a lot of hopelessness uh, and despair in, in, on the part of, of the many. Are, are those things, particularly campaign, campaign finance, uh, being sufficiently challenged by the Biden administration? Can they be challenged by one single administration? We could do a lot more. I mean, you know, without, again, going into all the details, we have a Supreme Court, the reactionary Supreme Court, that uh, made a decision on what they call Citizens United, which essentially said that billionaires have the freedom of speech to buy elections. That's their, their right, their freedom. Uh, I, I don't agree with that. Biden doesn't agree with that. Uh, but we have got to be aggressive at the state and local level to revitalize democracy and make it clear that billionaires should not be allowed to buy elections, that democracy means one person, one vote. And that means not only overturning this Citizens United Supreme Court decision, and we've tried to do some of that in the Senate, uh, it also means turning to public funding of elections. How, how radical would you be? So there's a, a great feeling on the American left, isn't there, that the Supreme Court itself is is illegitimate, that this Supreme yeah. Court, because of the way it's elected and, yeah. and the, the the fact of the of the way that, that the um, Senate is, is set up, um, w- would you be a court packer or would you threatened to go down that road? In other words, to appoint more justices until you had a Supreme Court that well, you felt was I, I think there are other the ways right to deal with The problem with packing the court, as Roosevelt found out in the 30s, is so you pack it and the next guy comes along, he packs it and you end up with 89 people on the Supreme Court. You know, uh, There are ways to deal with it. And I think that has to do with that ways that are constitutional. Uh, which allow members to rotate off of the Supreme Court. So I wouldn't be for packing the court, but it is an issue that has to be dealt with. I think one has to be very, very naive uh, not to believe that the Supreme Court has a political agenda. And in this case today, it is a very reactionary political agenda. Can I ask you another thing that, that occurred to me reading the book, and that's the kind of the breadth of the coalition, and you've referred to this coalition that, that, that supported you. Um, how fractious is it um, and, and how concerned are you by the identity politics that some on the American left concentrate on rather than class? And you talk a lot about class in, in the book. I, I, it put me in mind of Richard Rorty, the US political philosopher, I think is no longer with us, but read a book called Achieving Our Country many years ago in which he said there's nothing wrong with being on the left in politics. He was, but he said you've got to be fundamentally patriotic, actually. You've still got to believe that this country can be achieved, that the things that are set out in its kind of foundational documents should be achievable for everyone. And the challenge that he made, and I think the challenge a lot of people make now about the progressive left in the States, is that actually there's a lack of patriotism. There's a real feeling the whole place is is worthless. It's irredeemably racist, irredeemably all all sorts of things. No, that's not my view. You don't believe that, do you? No, that's not my view, and that's not the view expressed... Uh, in the book. But I'll tell you what I think a modern-day patriotism is. And I see that uh, a lot in young people. You know, uh, it's clear I, I lost the election. I'm not the president. But one, one of the things that we did accomplish is that uh, we won the overwhelming, not even close, 
uh, support of young people. And by young people, I mean people 40 or younger. And that is the future of America. So these are people who are looking not just at um, uh, minimal changes. Uh, they want uh, structural changes in American uh, society. So I think the new patriotism, and you see this in young people, young people want to roll up their sleeves uh, and get involved in transforming our energy system and having America lead the world in saving the planet. And we are working, uh, we work very hard and we'll continue uh, to work very hard on uh, creating uh, green jobs um, and a Green New Deal, where we can create millions of good-paying jobs, uh, energizing, uh, making our nation more energy efficient, and moving radically to sustainable energy. We have a major crisis in healthcare. We want young people to get involved to be doctors and nurses and psychologists. We desperately need them. We need more teachers in American society. We are tr our infrastructure is in deep trouble. We need more sheet metal workers and carpenters and plumbers. There is an enormous amount of work to be done. And the patriotism of the moment is working together to rebuild America. I'm fascinated by that answer because you mentioned there uh, practical things and actually things that are very relevant in class-based politics. What you don't mention there is the kind of identity stuff. For instance, with critical race theory, this idea that actually there are power structures, particularly to do with race, but actually in other areas as well, where you have to acknowledge first that, for instance, uh, to be white, whiteness is now an issue for some on the American left. The idea that there are structures from, from which you as an individual, however decently you behave, can't escape. No. You, you don't stress that. No, I that. don't accept that. Look, my experience has been, and I've seen that in the trade union movement, I've seen it in the youth movement, people can stand together where you're black and white and Latino or Asian American, no matter what you may be, if we are have a an agenda that speaks to the needs of all people, I believe we can work together and accomplish that. But so. it's your character that matters then, not the color of your skin. Absolutely. No, we, well, when we talk about building a working class in America uh, and, and a working class movement, uh, to a significant degree, it is a movement of people of color. Uh, because if we raise the minimum wage to a living wage, which I'm fighting to do, it will impact uh, black and brown people even more than white people, although millions of white people will benefit. But the bottom line is, uh, I think what we need and cannot allow uh, us to be divided, we need an agenda that speaks to all. Our health care system in the United States, I know you have problems with the NHS, underfunded, it has its stresses. We have a system which spends twice as much per capita as you do, and we've got 85 million people who are uninsured. They have no insurance at all. Over 60,000 people a year die because they don't get to a doctor on time. I got to unite. We want to unite the American people to say that health care is a human right. We pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. Our child care system is a total disaster. Kids leaving school, fifty, hundred thousand dollars in debt. You go to medical school. Do you know how much you leave school in debt in America? Do you know how yeah, much? Staggering sum. Four hundred, five hundred thousand yeah. dollars yeah. in debt, and we don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough nurses. So what I want to see us do, and what I believe we are beginning to accomplish, bring our people together around an agenda that works for all and have the guts to stand up to the corporate elite and the big money interests who today have the power. But do you have 
you're the guts. Do you have the power, though? I mean, do you write in the book and, and remind us in the book about certainly your first campaign um, for the presidency, for the nomination, where you're raising small sums from a lot of people? It, it, is that the future of someone, whether it's you or whether it's someone in the future who comes into office with that agenda? Is that how it's got to be done and can it be done? Well, and let me answer it in two ways. Number one, long term, we should have public funding of elections. People should not have to hustle and spend their lives raising money. Number two, um, what I am very proud of is that as a result of our campaign, and people said, wow, you can really run a credible campaign on small dollar donations. Many candidates for Congress and the Senate started to do that, became less dependent on big money interest. So right now, and this is to me a note uh, uh, of real optimism, we have more strong, underlying strong, progressives in the US House of Representatives than any time in the modern history of this country. Young people, often people of color, stood up, got elected, and they're doing a great job in the House. Do you have a sense of what um, you're supporting President Biden, and I think you expect that he will stand again, and we all expect that he will, will stand again. Um, if the Republicans this time round choose a younger person, perhaps Ron DeSantis, perhaps someone else, does that affect the equation, do you think, when it comes to the Democrats' choice? No, I don't think so. I think if, if Biden chooses to run, he will be uh, the nominee. I think we should not, uh, you know, Trump is nobody who's a little bit crazy, or maybe very crazy, but he's not stupid. Uh, but I don't think he is their strongest candidate. I think it's possible DeSantis, somebody else, uh, could be a stronger candidate uh, because they are not carrying the incredible baggage uh, that Trump is carrying. Uh, one of the issues that uh, I think points that our campaign made is that Democrats are losing the support of a lot of working class people, significantly whites, but increasingly Latinos and even uh, black workers. Uh, and what we are fighting for is an agenda that speaks to the needs of the working class in this country. You know, you talk about identity politics a moment ago. There is no compromise on racial justice, uh, on the fight against sexism, and the fight against homophobia. But where the Democrats in recent years, and we have a whole chapter on this in the book, have been weak, and people perceive it. They have, to a significant degree, turned their backs on the working class, whether you're white, black, Latino, Asian American, whatever. They've turned their backs, and we have to move once again. Uh, to be the champion of working families in, the, in, in America. And you think Biden can do that? And in a the sense, then his age won't matter, even if the Republicans come up with a much younger it's candidate. Not, age is not the be. issue. What is the issue is, is policy, is a willingness to take on powerful special interests. Let me give you an example. Uh, we have seen in the United States in the last several years uh, an uptick in trade union organizing. More and more workers want to become members of unions. What we are also seeing at the same moment is companies like Starbucks and Amazon engage in vicious union-busting efforts. We need the president, we need the Congress to say to these companies, you cannot break the law. Workers have the right to join unions. We want to build the trade union movement in America because the middle classes continue, continues to be in decline. That I have not yet seen, that kind of energy from the White House. I want to see it.
Wider thought before we end, how much trouble is America in? Because the, the, the kind of picture that we have of the United States is not just that it's fractured, but that there's this real hatred that has built up between individuals now and a movement, a physical movement, a part of, of people. Uh, you live, come from one of the more peaceful corners of the United States, Vermont, mainly full of trees uh, and lovely places. The rest of America isn't like that, is it? How worried are you about the whole enterprise? Well, I am. Uh, obviously, everybody is familiar with January 6th. I was there. Uh, it was a horrible moment, uh, not just you know on, on a personal level, uh, but for what it means in terms of where the United States uh, is at. Um, so that divisiveness, that division remains. It's real. Uh, but this is, you know, what I would also say to people who worry about the future of America. Uh, on issue after issue, it turns out that we are not divided. On issue after issue, you find that whether you're Republican or Democrat, you want a health care system that works for you and not just the insurance companies. You don't want to pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. You want a child care system that is affordable. You want to have your kid be able to go to college. You want to make sure that we're leaving our children and grandchildren a planet that is habitable. And what we have got to do is work on those issues where people are coming, can come together, uh, and uh, want real change. And that's what we're kind of trying to do. Bernie Sanders there speaking to Justin Webb. And before that, Russell Kane speaking with Samira Ahmed. Of course, there's much more where those came from. Dig into the podcast feed and catch up on any of our great chats you might have missed. We'll be hearing a few more staff picks in the coming episodes too. And if you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.